Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning. On today's show, we have Dr. Bob Willis, CEO of Foxcode, Inc., and Jeff Cunningham, head of the corporate practice for Seifarth & Shaw, a law firm here in Atlanta. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you with us. So um, Foxcode is a really interesting name, uh, Dr. Willis. Can you tell us what does Foxcode mean and what does your company do? Uh, in uh, in my misspent youth, uh, you know, the, you may recall the uh, the phone freaking um, rage before before PCs were a thing. In fact, uh, both uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, before they went on to found Apple, were uh, making these little phone freaking boxes, and it was basically a way to swipe uh, phone time from the phone company without paying for it. I'm sorry to say, and so eventually the phone company caught on to it and. Uh, they put these little interdiction boxes in their system, and one of the things that those boxes would ask for in a very primitive robotic voice was to please supply a fox code, which was a way to bypass the billing system. And uh, when the time came about 10 or 12 years ago to come up with a, a name for our merchant bank, that just was something that always kind of made me giggle. So fox code was born. So it really has almost nothing to do with merchant banking at all. Uh, it's just sort of a uh, kind of a Winking a nod to my 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 teenage past, unfortunately. Uh, so how long? But the merchant had... banking is sort of um, merchant banking is really a British term. It's sort of investment banking with a heavy ownership interest. So it's everything you might imagine an investment bank doing, but um, usually for your own account. So rather than being a hired gun, which most investment banking in the U.S. is done on behalf of someone else on a fee basis. Uh, merchant banking implies that you're acting for your own account and you become principal or sponsor in, in a transaction. So that's that's pretty much the difference in why we call ourselves a merchant bank. Um has a long and glorious history in the United States. Uh, the first merchant banking deal in the States was uh, Barings Bank uh, helping the United States buy the Louis, uh, Louisiana Purchase. So wow. it's... Uh, something that's got a long and storied history, and we're kind of excited to be carrying the torch for that. Right. And um, how long have you had Foxcode? Uh, it started in, in the U.K. Uh, in 2003-2004, and uh, we were working on an online casino transaction over there that we ended up taking public. So, And we've had it pretty much ever since in various forms. Usually, it, Foxcode gets reborn uh, into whatever transaction we're doing. So that's, that's about maybe, I guess, around... 12, 13 years at this point. And Jeff, how, how do you how do you guys know each other? Well, that's an interesting uh, an interesting question. <clears throat> um, I'm on the board of directors at the Atlanta Humane Society, and I'm on the the grown up board. You know, the business board, the boring board. <laughs> and we we're doing a lot of really cool stuff right now. But there is a, a junior board that's a, a more social organism. It's the 1873 Society. And one day, several years ago. Uh, we had a, a, a joint board cocktail party after one of the meetings, and I spent about an hour talking with this kid that had uh, graduated from uh, from Georgia and, and was working for uh, Morgan Stanley. And uh, I, I thought to myself at the time, uh, well, this kid, this kid will never do anything for you know for me, but I'll I'll see what I can do to help him out. And I 
took him to lunch a few times, and I invited him to some firm events, and uh, we kept in touch, and I tried to help him out in his career in any way that I could. And then about two years ago, two and a half years ago, when I uh, returned to Seiferth Shaw from some time away, uh, I was updating my LinkedIn pe- profile and saw that Mason, this the kid, had updated his, and he was no longer working in uh, Atlanta, and he was, had recently relocated to Philadelphia. So I reached out to him and said, what's up with Philadelphia? And Mason said, well, it's funny that you asked. I happen to be in town with my new boss. I'd love to bring him by and show him and introduce him to some, in, uh, some important people. And uh, I said, well, I can pretend to be as important for a little while as well as anybody. Uh, So bring him on. And Mason brought Bob, his new boss. And the half-hour meeting that we had uh, turned into about two and a half hours. And Bob and I just really hit it off. And uh, we have been together ever since. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. Exactly. Um, So I'd love to start each show with just talking with our guests about the trends that you think are really important for CEOs to know about. Um, and uh, I would love it if you guys would, would take each, each take that question. So, Bob, you want to start us off with that? Sure. Um, well, you know, economically, uh, the U.S. is it's sort of a tale of two cities in a way. But, um, you know, we are, we are now basically the number one oil-producing nation in the world. Uh, there's a quiet manufacturing Renaissance bubbling in the United States. Uh, it turns out that the U.S. is pretty much the first world country. I mean, if you if you were to look at Google Maps and zoom in on different places in the United States, you'll you'll start to notice that there's about eighty trillion dollars worth of sunk stuff in the United States. It's it's the prototype of a first world dug in infrastructure country. We've got stuff. We've got people. We've got educated people. We have a history of free market capitalism. I mean, this the trends here are there's a domestic economy waiting to explode to the upside. And it's industries that people have, have long since written off to overseas uh, markets, which are kind of experiencing their own um, decreases because they're looking for the promised land, too. A lot of the 70 cent an hour stuff in the Pacific Rim is going away because those folks, uh, they want the, the good life also. So I think the big trends for us are infrastructure, basic industrial stuff, uh, industrial markets coming back. I, I think the trends are there. You can see them if you're willing to look. So that's the big one for us. Um, in parallel, you'll notice that the financial markets are uh, really a very exclusive club. So um, unlike the first, the first IPO I did in the 90s, uh, was a $50 million IPO. Um, you know, I don't know when the last time you read about a $50 million IPO in the United States was, but it's not recent. So that's the other trend, which is this um, giant middle market world really doesn't have a lot of access to the organized capital markets. And so it's one of the pieces of special sauce that we've been able to take advantage of. So those those two trends together kind of at least guide Foxcode as far as where we want to point the company. And when you say stuff, you mean like infrastructure? Um, I mean everything. There, there are over 5,000 airports in the United States. There's 15 million miles of roads in the United States. There's skyscrapers, towns, villages, cities, you name it. 
train train lines, bargeways. Um, the the riverways are well navigable. Uh, we have every, like the Erie Canal. You know, what would it take to build the Erie Canal right now? So this um, it's stuff. Uh, it's uh, the infrastructure of a first world country. I mean, would it? When you order uh, FiOS or Comcast or whatever, it, it would be shocking to you if they said, well, that'll be five years from now, we'll be able to get that to you. We're, we're just blithely accustomed to the notion that there's a, a first world uh, country all around us, and it's very underutilized right now, very underutilized, because a lot of it was built in a time when we were much more domestically focused, but it's like a, it's like a pendulum swinging. I think those times are, are returning, and that's already true with short-run manufacturing and a lot of the infrastructure plays you see. The shale boom is just one of the things you'll notice about the United States, where this shale business, which we uh, got involved with a couple years ago, has been just a fantastic example of a heavy industrial business that in the 1970s and 80s, everyone assumed that that was game over. The United States was basically a fizzling petroleum power. Now, the number one oil producing country in the world, and really we're, we're production limited by the fact that OPEC has been, you know, gushing it out, refusing to limit production. Guess what? You know, we have a lot of untapped stuff there and the infrastructure to support it. So that's an amazing story if you think about it. I mean, five years to have layered on four million barrels a day of production. What other country in the world would have the infrastructure to pull that off? The brains? and the stuff, as I call it, to do it. It's, it's quite impressive. So all this talk about the demise of the U.S. and China taking over, you think, is, ho- um, is hogwash? It, well, it's objectively hogwash. I mean, you know, this is an $18 trillion economy that wants to be a $25 trillion economy. So if we get out of our own way, this is a, I mean, it's hard to exaggerate the productivity of the American economy. And, and it's not one thing. So let's do a little quiz. What's the number two export from Saudi Arabia after oil? By the way, I, I don't know the answer either. <laughs> I was going to say pigs, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So who knows, right? But it's not, you're not going to read about it in the front page of the Wall Street Journal. But name, name 10 industries that the United States is known for, including things like logistics. Mm. Getting a FedEx package from New York to LA, uh, LA overnight. I mean, these are the United States is a is a multi-dimensional economic powerhouse. The military power and all that stuff is just a caboose. The engine is the the economy, and there's nothing like it. I've traveled you know the world a lot, and uh, it's it's hard to exaggerate <laughs> the uh, the engine of the American economy. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty bullish on the U.S. Uh, I think these. I think the doom story, it's easy to tell yourself a, a doom story because um, there are other countries that are spooling up from very, very retro and backwards conditions. And that that's good news. It, what they tend to do is buy a lot of American products. Uh-huh. You go overseas and see a lot of people wearing Levi's and slinging iPhones around. These are, these are American things, American innovations. And the, uh, the demand for American stuff is... Is incredibly high. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty bullish on the U.S., actually. Got it. Got it. I have a couple more questions for you that I'll come back to, but I want to hear, Jeff, Jeff, what, you, what are you thinking that the, the trends are that you know, middle market CEOs need to pay attention to? 
Well, of course, I have my own uh, my own lens on that, uh, doing what I do for a living. Yeah, of course. Um, and I, I I see I see middle market CEOs looking more to their outside advisors for uh, proactive guidance and not uh, just reactive uh, behavior. Uh, I see uh, middle market CEOs looking to partner with people like me to uh, create a vision and create a path to to achieve that vision more than just wait for the phone to ring and then uh, you know request item number seven and item number eight off of the uh, law firm menu. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this contract that I need. Blah blah blah. Right, and and I see law firms, uh, l- leading law firms, uh, creating internally uh, new capabilities and new capacities uh, to to enable uh, that sort of interaction. Um, Cypher Shaw has been on a, a ten year mission to uh, implement uh, Six Sigma and and lean. Uh, uh, behavior and and methodologies uh, layered in with lots of uh, technology, special sauce to to uh, enable us to do that. And as a result, we can you know we can step in with a company like uh, like Foxcode or like uh, U.S. Shale Solutions that that we helped Bob set up last year and um, create a lot of infrastructure that we already have in-house and we can just bring to the table um, that uh, a U.S. Shell Solutions that springs out of the ground as a $300 million company uh, would have to uh, spend a lot of money to, you know, to, to create out of whole cloth and we can just provide it uh, in the context of setting up a transaction and executing a transaction and then we have it all set up already for an operating company. Mm. Um, you know, we, we're doing things like uh, document automation and contract management that, that are um, uh, bringing a lot of efficiencies to operating businesses and, and letting business owners focus on the things that they want to do to be in business, not the things that they have to do to be compliant. Mm. So I think that those are, you know, those are, are trends that are going to continue, and they grow out of the same, uh, the same soil that Bob was talking about. You know, we're the, these, are, uh, these are things that you don't see uh, in the rest of the world that's not, you know, surrounded by first world country uh, qualities. Hmm. Now, um, it's interesting because a lot of the backbone of all this is technology. And so one of the things that I understand is happening is that there's actually a change in the business model for law, right? Like the practice of law itself and how um, lawyers interact with their clients, how they charge, how they bill, how they think about their time is actually changing. Are you are you finding that at at Cyfarth? Well, I have. Uh, so when you say finding that at Cyfarth, you know, I want to qualify that we've got 850 attorneys that do about 850 different things. So you may get 900 different answers to that question okay. if you ask the same 850 people. Um, that said, you know, my practice has for a long time been focused on business owners and not on legal departments. For all intents and purposes, I'm the legal department for the people that I'm lucky enough to have call me with their ideas. Yeah, which is why I think that you're, it's great to have you on the show because you're you're interacting with these CEOs, you know, on a very street street level. It's pretty street. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but thank you. Um, so. Uh, you know, for years I have understood 
that, uh, you know, that that at, at the vi- the vision of a of a spinning attorney's meter is frightening, uh, <laughs> you know, and it feels like free fall for a lot of clients. So, uh, you know, I try to. Uh, and, and I have, have for a long time before it became really a you know a thing that was endorsed by my firm. I tried to uh, work on a you know on a budget and compartmentalized basis, uh, especially in new relationships. Now, once I've been working with somebody for you know ten years, then I start to give them a budget for the next thing that I'm going to do. You know, they I usually get an answer like, okay, whatever, just just do it. You know, which that that means that you've transcended. I suppose that's good, but. Um, you know, I think that that to your point, law firms are as are institutionalizing the same thing that I've known for a long time, which is that uh, the value of an hour of my time is not worth anything. The value of the thing that I'm going to do with that hour is something that a client can understand, and that's what clients want to you know want to talk about: is what are you going to do? What is the end product going to be? And then let's let's put a value on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, when you talk about applying Six Sigma. To the practice of law, how does that actually work? Because Six Sigma is all about, you know, consistency, replication, scalability, all those things. And, you know, you're dealing with, once again, 850 people who are doing 850 different things. Well, yes. But a lot of times those 850 different things are, well, that's 850 different people that do a a million different things. But take one of the first projects that we did was our uh, our, our immigration process. Now, I'm not an immigration attorney, so I'm going to completely butcher this, but this was 10 years ago. And we looked at uh, all of the steps that went into processing an H-1B visa from uh, gathering the information from the client to do initial client intake and conflicts check all the way through receiving the final visa approved. Um, and the people that do that for a living got into a room and they wrote out a process map of all of the steps and then went back with a fine tooth comb and looked at which of those steps were redundant or were rework or uh, you know could be eliminated or or consolidated and we uh, and I, I'm going to completely mess up the the math but we you know we reduced the number of steps involved by like 75 or 80 percent. It was, you know, it was, it was crazy that we had just been doing it the way that lawyers do things and not the way that a business does things. And when we put it, you know, put it through a business filter instead of, instead of a law filter, we came up with, with the same end result, but a much more efficient fashion. And as a result, we have become one of the, we, we've been able to fine tune our process, offer a fixed fee pricing model, uh, staff it in a more appropriate fashion and uh, become one of the, you know, very most leading immigration firms in the country. Um, and we had, you know, we handle some very, very enviable accounts that, uh, you know, are, we have maybe 10 attorneys and 150 people uh, in the, you know, in that department. So the leverage is, is, is huge. Uh, and we're getting it, you know, we're getting the work done by the lowest cost efficient provider. Hmm. Um, and so that's, that's what Six Sigma means in a, you know, in a law firm setting. Oh. Great. Um, so I want to get back to you, Bob, uh, and just um, go back to one of the comments that you made about uh, the giant middle market being underserved by, uh, by, 
you know, the financial sector. And I was wondering why you think that is, you know, why have, you know, IPOs and large fan, the financial transactions become such an exclusive, exclusive club? Yeah, I think um, there's, there's two main factors uh, that, that conspire, uh, conspire together to bring that about. The first one is just a regulatory um, force that's been injected over time into the markets. And this starts out slow and kind of accelerates over time. With more recent, uh, most recently, you get things like um, Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank, which really, really deals with commercial banks more, but it, it leaks into investment banking because um, the stakes are higher. The personal stakes are higher. Uh, the reputational stakes are higher. Um, you can have innocent error becomes a career-ending scenario. So I think there's there's a, a tendency to gravitate towards big fee, big fish kind of stuff. Um, so that's that's element number one. The second element is really more systemic in the economy generally, and that is um, most uh, most money is managed by institutional fund managers. So if you dump your money into a 401k or you're buying, you know, this, that, or the other uh, fund, or even for wealthy families uh, or wealthy individuals or even uh, companies that compile a lot of wealth, it, the money tends to be managed institutionally, and that means their their yield uh, gravity wells. So the way an institutional fund manager gets judged is yield against the background. So, mm-hmm. for example, um, you might think that the background is treasury instruments. So you might think the bar is easy to get over right now, but it's not really true because you know anybody who buys hamburger meat knows that inflation isn't really 2 or 3% in mm-hmm. the United States. It's much, much higher. It's probably closer to 10% than 2%. And so money is a wasting it's a wasting asset. It's like a it's like a head of lettuce on a July day in a parking lot. I mean, you can almost watch it waste away. And the buying power of money wastes away. And so the yield story that a fund manager has to have to do a deal has to be much higher. And you have to chunk much bigger chunks of money at once in order to pile onto deals and it becomes this it's almost like a foregone conclusion uh that the money can then yield it turns out to not be true but that that creates this gravity well of larger transactions so if you're a mere mortal um you know need who needs 20 or 30 or 50 or even 100 million dollars of debt or equity it's going to be very very hard to go to a public or quasi public market and get it um there's also more volatility in the middle market. So, you know, when you're when you're betting on the middle market, you're almost always betting on a, a person or persons. Mm. You're betting on a CEO, you're betting on a particular team. So that that's that translates to volatility to a fund manager. It's very hard to get them over that fact. Now, it turns out again, you're really making that same bet with larger companies. It just doesn't feel that way. When you're buying um uh, you know, bonds or equity of a billion-dollar company, you think you're buying the inertia of a billion-dollar company, but it turns out it might just be the same weird quirks of a CEO that you'd be buying if you bought a $75 million company's equity. But I think those two things dominate, and it's it's obvious. I mean, the if you, if you read the Wall Street Journal every day, you would come to believe that that's what the market is, and it's those few dozen or hundred companies you always read about, plus 
a few thousand that you don't really read about, but you know they're on the stock market. But the reality is, there's 15 million companies in the United States. How now, many? So the vast majority of the real market mm-hmm. is invisible, and it's the middle market where the growth really comes from. So it's it's where the action's at, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really great. So you also mentioned that you think that the U.S. is getting in its own way and in, in going from an 18 trillion dollar economy to a 25 trillion dollar economy. What what does that mean? Like, what is the U.S. doing to get in its own way? Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of federal manipulation. Um, I'll give you a perfect example of what's happening this week. Overseas, um, Greece is trying to wrangle its way out from underneath an oppressive debt scheme that's been piled on them because they're part of the euro. Mm-hmm. The euro is a single currency that spends just as well in Amsterdam as it does in Athens. And I've been to both of those places, and I'll tell you, they probably shouldn't have the same money. Now, the U.S., we have a similar scenario, but it's not quite as dire, but we do share a common uh, currency across all 50 states. Yeah, but New York and Mississippi are not quite the same either. I'm sorry? I said New York and Mississippi aren't quite the same either. Exactly right. Precisely right. So... And the, by the way, they tend to have different industry concentrations, Mississippi and New York. They tend to have different labor concentrations. They tend to have different economic concentrations. The, if you were to do a core sample of the population, you'd come up with quite different numbers. So the, when you have a single monetary policy that's pursued with a vengeance, and it's been pursued with a vengeance in forms of quantitative easing, etc., you manipulate the debt markets all at once for all of these markets at once. And that it's a one-size-fits-all scenario. It's like a Soviet shoe factory in 1975. You know, it's just not really, it's not a good fit. And so there's growth waiting to bubble through. But the fiscal policies, the one-size-fits-all fiscal and regulatory policies, tend to, tend to tamp that down. Combine that with, uh, you know, a company that needs only, quote-unquote, 5 or 10 or $20 million dollars. They're going to have to look privately for it. And it's, a, it's a real struggle for normal people to raise $10 million. It's, it, it doesn't come naturally. So it's a little bit. The United States would probably at 20% just isn't. So, Jeff, if, if a middle market CEO is trying to raise you know, $10, 20000000 million, what, where, what's their strategy in today's market, you think? <clears throat> uh, well, the, uh, so the first question is what are, the, what are they going to do with that 10 or $20 million? Because the people with the ten or twenty million dollars want to know, uh, you know. So, I that's a that's a an impossible question to answer in a vacuum. You know, if you just want ten or twenty million dollars because you want it and you think you could do some good stuff with it, you're just not going to get it. Right, right, right. What about let's say a new product launch? Then, then there would be an ex, an, an extensive investigation into into the uh, novelty and viability of the. Uh, of the product itself. Now, I will say that, you know, um, one of the things that, that you've heard on your show a lot this year has been uh, about the, you know, the health of the economy and the strength of the, you know, the M&A markets and everything's coming back. Right. Without necessarily a whole lot more detail than that. And I'm not going to say that I disagree with that, but I will I will take a different, um, a different take on it. And I'll say that uh, while there is, uh, you know, more activity in mergers and acquisitions, there probably is even more activity than that 
in project finance. And that's because these big piles of cash that are looking for a home can understand a project and can, and the, the analyst can evaluate, you know, a project for its projected return that's got, uh, you know, an, an, an end result and a, you know, and a, a date certain, you know, beyond which it can be sold for X number of dollars. And, uh, you know, that can be quantified much more easily than uh, whether an acquisition is going to be successful over, you know, a 10-year a run. Uh, you know, in, in, in an acquisition, and, and Bob, this is something that you and I have talked about, you know, a lot. Uh, in an acquisition or a business combination of some sort, the failure is generally not because the computers don't talk with each other. No, it's because of the people. It's because of the people. Right. But, in, but if you're dealing with a, you know, with a, a project and a creation of something new, then you don't really have the same concern. You have, you know, you have the behavior of the of the market and the behavior of the the consumer or whoever your target is, and whether your product will do what it says it's going to do, and you can evaluate the you know the granular details a lot better than you can evaluate the fuzziness of a business combination. So, um, you know, my relationships tend to be with uh, with CEOs, with business owners, and the discussions that I have really are more frequently about uh, project finance and getting, you know, bringing an idea to uh, fruition than about combining two businesses uh, or three businesses or four or five. Um, and that's a lot dicier proposition. Right. And I've heard for time immemorial that there's all this money someplace in the universe waiting for a few good deals. Is that really true? And, and like, where is this this money that like all this money that's waiting there on the sidelines to fund deals? It, it, it's exactly that. It waits on the sidelines for, <laughs> for the right kind of deal, but it, a lot of the money sits in funds that can't reach down into the middle market because the, the bite sizes are too small. I mean, if you're running, just do the math. If you're running a billion dollar fund and you start taking on $5 million or $10 million opportunities, you're going to have a portfolio of 100 to 200 deals, which means you'll need a staff of 1,000 to be able to do that, which you're not going to do. So that's as money tends to pile up in places, that's why middle market deals are much harder to do because they're, uh, this, the capital sources are scattered. They're not, they don't, it's not one call to make. You might have to make 100 calls to find the right you know, private family office, so the right combo platter of lenders or whatever. So as institutional investors get larger and larger, their practical ability to reach down into smaller deals goes away. So that's the mismatch. There's only a finite number of Alibabas and Facebooks out there for these massive deals to take place. So it's a weird mismatch. That's one of the one of the motivating factors behind the deal that Jeff and I worked on last year, U.S. Shale, which was, you know, bringing four companies together to make a business that needs 200 or 300 million dollars, mm. or a 200 million dollar raise for a 300 million dollar company, where each one of them didn't need anywhere near that, but it, together they could actually reach into those larger pools of capital. So it's, but that's that's a pretty unusual deal. You know, most most of the time you can't do that. So. I think you pointed right at it by saying the money is sidelined because it does, the the mass of opportunities don't demographically fit 
their their profile correctly. And what does U.S. Shale do? It's an oil and gas services company, so it it basically does the services that surround fracking wells. Um, Everything from moving trucks around, moving waters around. They provide uh, the acid and the chemicals involved in fracking. They do construction, a lot of construction of pipeline, gathering systems from the wellhead to the uh, to the upstream pipes. Uh, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool business. Right. And so, as you you think about the um, the future of U.S. shale, like what I mean, what do you see, and what what's your plan for the company going forward? Well, you know, oil and gas uh, had a real price shock in the last year, so it's, which made it's most people be a very happy. Consolidation play, you know, <laughs> because um, uh, you know a lot of weaker performers will get squeezed out. So, I think our view is business will continue to consolidate even faster than we thought, because we always intended to have it be the platform for a consolidation play, an M and A consolidation play. But mm. I think that's that reality is going to come even quicker, honestly. So just to talk about that deal for a moment, um, you know, Bob's group looked at, <clears throat> what, about 200 different companies? Yeah, yeah. So they looked at confidential information uh, memoranda for about 200 different companies. In this space. In, in, in so you'd the, already chosen the space that you wanted to be in. They looked, okay. That's right. They, 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 selected the, they selected the, you know, the industry and the vertical and then started looking at SIMS. And uh, we got brought in. Uh, when there were six companies that were that were under investigation or were looking at very seriously under LOI, so they're uh, doing due diligence on six, right? And uh, during the process, we added another five, and then kicked out seven that were of the eleven total that we looked at very very closely. Uh, seven were the you know were, were the the least worthy, uh, so we ended up with four out of. Out of 200 initial looks, you know, a funnel of 200, down to uh, 11 of, of really highly qualified, down to four finalists that we got all the way to closing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of work. Well, and that's 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 to Bob's point, you know, that you you wouldn't do that much work on a on a you know a five, ten, or twenty million dollar uh, adventure. Mm-hmm. How long, Bob, did that whole process take you? Uh, about. A- well, it was about a two-year process from the beginning of, of looking at the business. Probably 20 months, I'd say. Wow. It was it was quite the marathon. But then, you know, you've got the right deals. By the time you're, you've done that kind of work, you, you know you have the right deals. And a big part of this is just translating um, excellent businesses into the kind of um, vernacular that exists in very specialized vertical industries like finance. So, you know, and and the the law and accounting plumbing that goes into those types of transactions. So, you know, looking at Jeff and Cyphers, they basically brought they brought these businesses the uh the legal plumbing that was needed in order to get into an institutional bond market. And we had Grant Thornton, for example, come in and do the same thing on the audit side, because none of these businesses had been audited before. So so you're taking they're taking people who, from scratch, built multi-multi-million-dollar businesses, very profitable, you know, true entrepreneurial types. But in order to get into the the game where all that sidelight money is, you, you still have to have a, a Rosetta Stone way to plug into that, into those markets, those defined markets. And 
So you have to uh, put a layer of lacquer, uh, 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 an interface basically between the businesses, the excellent businesses, and tell the story in a way that the markets can comprehend it legally and financially. So that that itself was probably a, a three or four month exercise while in parallel still finishing the, the negotiation. So the idea of arriving at the altar where you're on the same day, and it literally was the same day, you're going to acquire four businesses and place a $210 million bond offering with its own set of legal and financial documentary requirements. It was, it was a pretty unusual deal from that perspective. But um, when you when you see how all the pieces have to fit together, it turns out that the markets will respond. Both the selling markets and the buying markets will respond. And so now that you have these four companies consolidated, how how is the people side going? Because as Jeff said, that you know that's usually where all the risk is when you're looking at rolling up a rolling up a series of companies. Yeah, I think um, considering considering what the market has done with the oil, you know, being as wild as it has been, I think I think that side's been been pretty darn good. Um, the, the basic businesses had one of the criteria that we used as a a rejection filter was had the business been around long enough to have seen a drawdown before. In other words, did they did they go through the last price shock in say 08 or 07? So all these businesses with these owners had had gone through that. So that was important to us because um, for that exact reason we didn't want we didn't want the uh, this to be their first time, you know, going through a bad turn of the market. Also, they were, they were all quite well off to begin with, so we didn't want a situation where our check was the first uh, first big check they'd ever cashed because that tends to bring out a lot of pathological personality traits as well. So, you know, we we were cautious going into each one of these to make sure we weren't, weren't buying any personality Disasters. We had gotten all the sellers together a few times in person for events just to see if any, if there were going to be any real sort of mushroom clouds, interpersonal mushroom clouds. And uh, so we, I think we we picked well. Time will tell, of course, but you know we picked well. I think. How long? Oh, go ahead. Well, Jeff. and Foxcode also went through an extensive process mapping exercise uh, themselves, looking at uh, all of the steps in the value chain from. From the wellhead to the you know to the the delivery of of oil in the you know in the the shale fracking uh, process and one of the things that that is nice about the combination of businesses that they have is that they're not there's not a tremendous amount of overlap but the uh, the areas in the value chain that these businesses occupy are more or less adjacent. Okay. So. Uh, they they go well together as a unified story, and they're not so disparate that they just have nothing to do with each other other than they both say fracking. And so did it sounds like you guys have maintained and retained a lot mm-hmm. of the the management team for the companies that you acquired. Um, how are you going about establishing a, a a coherent culture amongst the four companies? Yeah, I don't think you forced that. I think uh, we we used you know employment contracts and non competes to, and that was another one of the filters. You know, we had to make sure that none of the owners were going to look for the exit right away. So we have two or three year employment contracts with all these sellers uh, to hang around. Um, but I don't think you I don't think you go out of your way to try to force that there. And that's 
circumstantial to this business to a certain extent because uh, even just the different geographies of the locations tend to uh, generate a different cultural mix on the ground. And there's no real reason to force uh, that sort of thing together in this business. It's more important to have some systems coherency. So we want to have as as much as we can the right billing systems, accounting systems, things like that. Um, other businesses, though, you know, you need you need a, uh, a better meshing. Uh, but other businesses are probably more inclined to be meshed than a bunch of uh, folks who generally spend their time in the oil patch and don't go to an office every day. So I think um, for us, it's more of a systems integration thing than a, than a true cultural mishmash where you're trying to really jam people together and make them love one another so i think um <laughs> they don't again, all have to play in the same sandbox at the same time yeah they they, they they don't all show up at the same office now 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 that it's, <laughs> it's a combined business they don't all go to a, a different uh, location and everybody show up together you know wearing the uh the u.s shale t-shirts the u.s shale t-shirts, t-shirts all carrying their their company sure. briefcase you know they <laughs> We did just change the uh, stickers that go on the trucks. So they, we've kept all their original logos, but down at the bottom it says a U.S. shale company. So okay. we have we have gotten that far that the uh, the stickers on the trucks are now uh, have an extra logo on them. So you know we're it's baby steps out there. Yeah, steps. but they I mean they they cover literally thousands of miles in uh, in the territory in which they they operate. So it's uh, you know these these are our combined businesses that that don't necessarily have to spend a whole lot of time with each other either. Got it. So looking forward, um, what do you like in terms of industries for future investment to the extent that you're looking at your next thing? Yeah, um, it's a um, similar kind of infrastructure notion. That's a, we've uh, we've already done a do transaction a few years back in the um, cellular infrastructure, working on cell phone towers. I think there's going to be another wave of telecom uh, infrastructure plays. I think you'll see a lot more in-building cellular versus the freestanding tower stuff, so there's still room to make good chunks of consolidated money there. Um, energy, I think water, I think uh, I think what you're seeing now on the West Coast is a combination of, again, bad sort of regulatory policy, but, you know, California has 40 million people and they're in a three-year drought, so I think water infrastructure has, has some good possibilities. It's a little more highly regulated than we tend to be able to do reliably, but that's something we're we're looking at as well. Um, on the financial side, you know, things that involve insurance, um, there's, uh, there's, uh, th- those things go with a pendulum flow as well, hyper-regulated, and then there's a, a move towards deregulation down to the state level, so there might be some plays there. So it's really just looking at these big demographic shifts, uh, trends, if you will. Um, I love short-run manufacturing. Um, Logistics. I think there's a lot of. Um, uh, we're looking at companies, for example, that uh, deliver and retrieve cable boxes. There's actually some consolidation plays possible there. So, things that involve logistics, infrastructure, very basic businesses, but um, that are financed very sporadically, and there's a lot of fragmentation. Those represent good merchant banking style opportunities for a company like Foxcode. Great. Jeff, did you have anything you wanted to add? Any other places that you think folks should be paying attention to? Uh, so Bob and I have focused a lot on on consolidation plays and arbitration plays and, and uh, looking at uh, similar businesses that are uh, 
uh, too small to get uh, to get real financing opportunities, but if put together uh, in the right way, uh, would aggregate to a, a very financeable structure. Um, you know, I continue to think that's a that's a real opportunity for someone who's looking to uh, to do deals, uh, particularly to do deals with other people's money. You can always write a check for your own your own deal if you've got it. Um, but uh, people that are looking to to finance a deal, that's a you know, I think that is a, uh, a very fertile ground um, and will continue to be. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is important um, is you guys obviously have done some really great business together. Um, and what is it that you think has made the relationship work? Why do you think that it's been so fruitful for you guys? We both watched the same uh, 1970s cartoons. <laughs> that was the, What's that? The critical Scooby-Doo? element. <laughs> well, it's all of them. It's, okay. It, it's, all of them. It's, yeah. it's, it's not just it's not just one. It's it's really all of the cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Uh, well, you know, uh, the 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 legal advisor. It's more than just getting the right documents. So you have to have someone who can um, triangulate on the pitfalls. Uh, someone who's intelligent. Jeff is super intelligent, so I, I, I need to be able to have super intelligent people around who can parse the, the business side and parse the risks. And you know, the most most important legal product, in my view, that you can buy is this this sort of risk analysis. Um, and I, I view I view legal documents mostly like you would view when you cut a tree down and you see all the the rings inside uh, the tree trunk, you know, every one of these sections in these legal documents is the result of some fight that somebody had before, Every, especially the, the risk mitigating parts or the risk assigning parts. So assigning risk in complicated deals and thinking about all the, the contingent and subjunctive ideas that can happen, like what if this happens, what if that happens, you know, having somebody around who can really parse that and help you help you see where those pitfalls are because it's not about intelligence wholly. It's about intelligence plus experience. And without those two ingredients in combination, you know, you're not really a legal advisory product. You're getting a, a document generator. So uh, law firms of a certain size and even small law firms can generate documents. There's no doubt. Um, and there's a huge part of, you know, for example, what we did at U.S. Shale, there were lots and lots of documents, probably four feet of documents in the final <laughs> deal. But what really you're buying is is that confluence of intelligence and experience that gives you the right picture of the risk landscape. So uh, medium-sized businesses that are growing or getting into uh, financial transactions or M&A-type transactions where you know a CEO might not have a ton of experience, well, you really you really need to have that. Ingredient. So I've been through about 30 M&A transactions, a couple of IPOs, and it doesn't matter. You know, you you don't know what you don't know, and so in every case, it's important to have somebody like Jeff to help you parse out that risk landscape. Because boy, you can really you can really stub your toe if you're not careful. Right. So you have worked with a lot of lawyers. Yes, I, my chromosomes are all still intact as far as I know, but yes, everything is, <laughs> everything is still functioning normally. But, uh, and by the way, Jeff makes lawyer jokes too, so that, that's the other cool thing, in addition, in addition to the cartoon. You have a good one for uh, us, Jeff, a good lawyer joke. Yeah, yeah, you're a comedian, say something funny. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, and again, everybody, every law firm has their sort of thing too. So, um, but Jeff, you know, being the sort of head of his group and it it just, it's just a lot easier to, you can go places that others might not be able to take you. And I mean, the, the U.S. shale deal was, was pretty much a unicorn. So he was able to really stand stand in there with us in a way that I, I think a lot of lawyers might not have been able to. So, um, but yeah, I, uh, when I lived in the UK, uh, we uh, we were doing the IPO for the online casino. It was a very high profile uh, IPO at the time, and uh, we had probably the, the number one law firm in Europe as our advisor and uh they were fond of bringing us in and giving us updates on the transaction over lunch which in the uk involves wine and the whole nine yards right in the middle of the work day but i arrived uh, for one of these lunches and i noticed that they had uh, butter pads in the shape of the corporate logo and uh i said to myself this might mean that i'm paying too much in law fees if my uh, if my lawyer has their own butter making machine but so so far jeff hasn't showed up with his face uh, in boston butter so i think we're still okay not sure yeah and and jeff for your part what what do you think makes um makes baba a great client uh well a lot of things make bob a great client but first of all is that he's you know he, he has become a great friend um you know, I I view our relationship really as a as a as a, a partnership that um, we each bring to the you know to the relationship our own uh, our own skills, and we can have conversations where we you know we huddle, we divvy up the responsibilities, and then go off and do what we're going to do. And uh, you know, Bob has great and big ideas, and what I love to do is uh, help. Uh, my clients uh, realize on their great and big ideas. I'm I get enormously bored if I have the type of client who wants a document production shop because I don't I don't do that. Um, so Bob's never asked me to produce a whole bunch of documents. He's asked me to uh, help him realize his ideas, and uh, that's a lot of fun. And I'm privileged to have an opportunity and and uh, uh, the the you know the ability to have the tools to do that with him. Great, great, great. Well, um, as you guys look at the you know the future of um, Fox Code and U.S. Shale, uh, is there anything that you want to share with our listeners that you think they'd be interested in knowing? Well, gosh, I think uh, just working backwards. I mean, uh, the U.S. U.S. Shale deal, I think, is a symptom of some of the stuff we talked about earlier, which is you know it's going to be going to be good for all of us um to have a to have a country that has that kind of capability of of that sort of self-sufficiency i guess so wouldn't surprise me to see the united states becoming an oil exporter and removing the prohibition of oil export that's been around with us since uh, really almost 40 years ago uh so i'm i'm noticing that uh you know the Saudis, for example, tried to shove us out of the oil business by continuing production, and that's happened for a, a few of these OPEC meetings in a row. But all it really has done is made the U.S. even a more efficient and cost-effective and therefore a more formidable competitor. And I think, uh, you know, that that's it's one thing to notice is 
how insanely competitive uh, Americans are when they're finally motivated into a competitive scenario, just like shale. So basically from zero to four million barrels a day, which is almost half of the nine million barrels that we produce a day, by the way, a day. So shale has gone from basically a, a hard stop to four million barrels a day of production. That's an amazing story. It touches on every single part of American ingenuity, from logistics, technology, finance, you name it. And so Foxcode, to go to the first part of your question, you know, the notion of Foxcode is to try to notice those things when they're still sort of prototypical and try to, you know, find businesses that are probably too, slightly too small on their own to take advantage of, but maybe are right on the cusp, bring a few of those together and, and do these sorts of things. So those are the things that excite me uh, about the trends that I see, and I think that's where U.S. Shale and, and the, company, uh, the country in general are going and, and where Foxcode is going to try to follow at least a little bit. Great. And if folks want to get in touch with you to find out more about anything that they've heard from you this morning, how can they do that? Sorry, I lost you there a little bit. I apologize. Uh, if folks want to get in touch with you to find out a little oh, yeah. bit more about what they've heard. Right, uh, foxcode.com. And, uh, all the good contact info is there. and be always happy to find some new friends, especially in Atlanta. We've had uh, our telecoms infrastructure business. It was based there when we found it. And of course, our uh, friend and protector, Jeff, is there. So i uh, love to hear from your listeners. It'd be great. Foxcode.com. Thank you very much. O-X-C-O-D-E. Thank you very much, Dr. Willis. And, and thank you Jeff, so much. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. And, and Jeff, anything um, new at SciFarth that you want to let people know about? Well, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're continually looking to uh, improve our processes and, and uh, bring new ideas to the delivery of legal services, whether that's in terms of technology or process or, uh, you know, or just relationship building. Um, and in my space... Uh, you know, if there's if there's anything that you've taken away from uh, this discussion, uh, you know, I, I think that it's you know it's relationships and creativity. Uh, that's what you know. That's what really gets gets us going uh, in the Atlanta corporate practice. So, uh, you know, if you if any of your listeners have a uh, you know have a creative idea uh, and are looking to you know to partner with a law firm or with a you know with with anybody to uh, bring that idea into being, you know, look us up. Great. And if they want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, I'm, we're at www.cyfarth, S-E-Y-F, as in Frank, A-R-T-H, dot com. And that will, that's, that's the portal to the whole firm. And my name is Jeff Cunningham. I'm, uh, I'm on, on the website. Great. Thank you very much, guys, for a great show. It's wonderful having you. Cheers. Thank you. All, okay. all the best. Thanks. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.